The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We are going through the book of Acts, 28 chapters in our English Bible. We are now in chapter 20, so we've made great progress in this wonderful record written by Luke the physician, personal friend and fellow missionary of the Apostle Paul, and God commissioned Luke, who was highly educated, godly man, disciplined, did his homework, did his research, interviewed people, collected data. Also, the Spirit of God gave him direct information, and Luke also had firsthand experiences of some of the things here in the book of Acts, and also he was close friends with the Apostle Paul. Through all those resources, by God's guidance, he ended up writing the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and it is 100% reliable. The book of Acts is really how the church started through Jesus Christ as he laid down the foundation just uh, as he was ascending into heaven. And then Luke uh, traces the development of the church in Jerusalem, the ministry of the 12 apostles and Peter, how the Apostle Paul gets saved and becomes the Apostle Paul. And then from thir- chapter 13 to the rest of the book, chapter 28, is an emphasis on the ministry of the Apostle Paul and how God used him. And Jesus told us in Acts chapter 9, I know it was a long time ago, but here's what he said. Saul was his previous name. He hated the church. He persecuted Christians. He actually was responsible for even torturing and killing Christians. Jesus supernaturally intervened in his life, personally, on the road while he was traveling, blinded him, and saved him. And Paul is saved by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And upon being saved, in Acts chapter 9, God told Paul his mission. And he said it specifically through Ananias, his partner there. And Jesus said that I have, I've called Paul for a unique mission. Unique. He's going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That was unique. In other words to the rest of the world outside of Jerusalem. And he will be my representative before kings and rulers as well as the sons of Israel. And that's why Paul, that's the Jews. So that's why while Paul goes into every new town, he's looking for a synagogue first for salvation is from the Jews. And then after that, Jesus uh, said, and I must make known to Paul how much he must suffer for my sake. Okay, this is 33 A.D., just as Paul's getting saved, just as Paul's getting started. By the way, your ministry for me is going to be characterized by hardship, suffering, persecution, and ultimately, we find out from history, death. And that's actually what we've been seeing in the book of Acts ever since Acts 13 up to chapter 20. Paul being persecuted, rejected, maligned for doing what? for being a holy man of God, preaching about Jesus. That Jesus is the answer to life's problems. He is the only answer. He is the only Savior. He is the only way to heaven. He is God in the flesh. And he was persecuted and abused as a result. But anyway, he knew that was his calling. He resigned himself to that in faith and accepted the fact that he belonged to God and God could use him any way God saw fit. So Paul is exemplary with that attitude and so here we are 
So he gets saved in 33 AD, and then let's fast forward about 25 years now. That's where we're in Acts chapter 20. It's about 58 AD. Paul's been a Christian for quite some time. He's nearing the end of his life. Here we are in 58 AD. He's um, just finished a three-year mission trip of planting churches. His home church was Syriac of uh, Antioch of Syria, a thousand miles away from Ephesus. And he said goodbye to the church. He hasn't seen them in three years. He's going to go back to the home church now after three years. Much has transpired. Most of that time was in Ephesus, planting a church in this huge, cosmopolitan, utterly pagan city. And Paul was there for three years. Planted a church, had success in ministry, but he was also... Uh, continually facing opposition and persecution in Ephesus to a point where actually he couldn't stay there anymore. Otherwise, his life would have been taken prematurely. And so the Spirit of God let him out of there. Uh, but this is where we are. This is the context. Um, just spent three years in ministry on his third missionary journey. Uh, in this, we're going to see in Acts 20, 17 through 38, Paul's talking to the elders, and he, he says, I think I'm going to die shortly. We know that at this point in history, he would live another nine years or so. There's still much that God... Uh, had him left to do up to this point. He still has seven epistles to write for us. Can't leave us without a portion of the New Testament, so God's going to use him to do that. He's written six thus far. So we thank God for Paul's wonderful ministry. Uh, currently we find him. We left off in Acts 20 where he was traveling around to all kinds of different places and visiting cities and went to Corinth for three months and wrote a letter there and then encouraged the saints. He's collecting money everywhere he goes for the saints in Jerusalem that need relief desperately. So he's collecting that with a team who's going to bring it to Jerusalem. So that's a, that's a goal he has. He's headed to Jerusalem. He wants to get there quickly. He originally wanted to get there by Passover, but plans got messed up, so he had to go to plan B. So can't make Passover, so I'll try to make Pentecost. So that's where he is now. He's got a sense of urgency. I got to get to Jerusalem uh, by Pentecost, I also have to get there to relieve the saints with all this money that I'm uh, carrying from all these gracious churches in this area with my team of men. And, and I need to meet with the leaders of the church of Ephesus where I just spent three years because I have much to say and us, much to warn them about as leaders in what became a key Christian uh, headquarters for Christianity at that time in the world. But Paul didn't want to go and stop in Ephesus because there's too many people to talk to. So he goes by ship, goes past Ephesus about 30 miles to another port in a city called Miletus, and that's where we are in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. So Paul, apparently they've chartered their own boat because from the text we see they are able to go pretty much anywhere they want to, Paul and his associates on this little boat. And Paul's saying, okay, let's go here, let's stop here, let's stop here for a night, let's go to Miletus, let's, let's stop there. So that's where they are. Acts chapter 20, 17 through 38. Narrative passage, big chunk of scripture. By the way, we're not going to get through all 38 or all the way to verse 38. There's just too much here. Uh, it is too rich. We don't want to rush through it. So I would put the title of the sermon today is The Ministry of, the, of Local Church Elders, Part 1. And we'll see if we can exhaust the first point. I got three points there for you as we just walk through the narrative. And the context, your big picture, uh, Paul is with Luke. And seven other associates with him. They've got a big cache of a stash of money on this ship. They stop in Miletus. They're about to go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, but, and then he sends an envoy or a messenger 30 miles away. Hey, go to Ephesus and, and tell all the leaders of the churches there 
to come or of the church to come to Miletus and meet me here. And so all the elders travel, leaving Ephesus, come to Miletus, and they're having an elders meeting in Miletus. That's what this is. Some commentary said this is a sermon by Paul in Acts 20, 17 through 30. This is not a sermon. This is an elders meeting. Paul is talking heart to heart with great vulnerability, emotion, and divine truth to the men that he loved and served with for three years in the church of Ephesus. So this is a mega elders meeting. There's much to be gleaned from this uh, wonderful passage. So that's the big context, which led me to my lead question that I want you to think about or to answer is what what's the main thing? Say you had to move somewhere. God moved you out of the area for whatever reason. Like we saw earlier, Aaron going down to Southern California. He's got to he's got to find a church down there. So when you're moving out of the area or whatever, and you're a Christian, priority number one for you and your family is you got to find a good church, right? So what is the first thing you look for? in a good church? What's ingredient number one? That would be interesting to ask you all and survey you and, and see what you came up with. And uh, I thought about it, and I th- for me, it's, it is crystal clear. Some would say, well, I'm looking for a church that has good doctrine. So, you know, you go on the website and look up their statement of faith. If they have one posted, some churches hide that for a reason, or maybe they don't have one. So some people will do that, and that's that's legit. But for me, that would be probably like number two or three. Uh, For me, if I'm looking for a good church, not that I think I'm going anywhere soon, but anyway, if I'm looking for a good church, uh, I'm looking at the leadership of the church. It it starts there. The leadership dictates everything. You can find a theologically sound, airtight statement of faith at a church, and they can be quite dysfunctional because of the people there, the leaders in particular. Unqualified leaders, compromised leaders, a compromised leadership structure. I've seen that firsthand. Oh, here's a good church. How do you know? Because they have a great statement of faith. And then you go there and, oh my. Great compromise with respect to character and understanding the Bible and implementing the Bible. So it starts with the leadership. It starts with the character of the leadership and their understanding of of the Bible, of God's word, of their mandate that I believe is crystal clear in Scripture. And here is an example. Acts chapter 20, 17 through 28, I think is a model, an illustration of how church leadership should, number one, be structured, and number two, how it should function, and number three, what their priorities of ministry should be. That's what we glean from this passage. Very practical. I remember it was 21 years ago. I became an associate pastor of a little country church in northern Utah. And I I went there and I was called, I was immediately called the associate pastor. And they had a senior pastor. He was my buddy. And then we had four lay guys who were called deacons. And once a month we would have a deacon board meeting. So they had a deacon board. They did not have an elder board. They did not have elders. They didn't even know what the word elder was. So here I was a pastor on staff. I was called a pastor. But when we functioned as a team, we were called the deacon board. And there were no elders to be seen or heard of anywhere. So this is 21 years ago. And 
and the senior pastor was a friend of mine. And so quick within the two to three months that I was hired there, we had a lot of conversation. I was just asking them, so you, you guys got a deacon board? And they, they, so they like lead and oversee the church? The deacons do? Like this board? Really? And so, and I, and I'm a pastor, but I'm also a deacon on the, de- wait, I'm a pastor and a deacon? Really? And just to him, this is, yeah, this is the way it's always been, uh, with this particular denomination. I was like, oh, well, that, that's not in the Bible. That was a shock to him. He also had a seminary degree, not for my seminary. And that just, he was bewildered by that. He was not offended. He was just like, really? Tell me more. So we spent a lot of private conversation. And I was just showing him from the Bible. Well, have you ever heard of elders? Well, not really. Really? Wait, you went to seminary and got an MDiv? Okay, that's all right. Uh, well, I'll show you if I can prove to you from Scripture, because he believed the Bible was the authority, so very teachable. And I walked him through Scripture and showed him that churches should have elders and the plurality of elders, and that was God's structure, that was God's mandate. And it, over time, he, he was convinced. He said, you know what, Cliff, you're right. This is what God has laid out. This is clearly the New Testament church. You know what, you need to lead our deacons in this study you just led me in. Those four other deacons. They would be harder to convince. Uh, for different reasons, their personalities, their their lack of education uh, in terms of formal study in Scripture, uh, also because of their heritage and background, being entrenched in certain denominations where elder was a foreign word but also a bad word. So he knew it was going to be the, hopefully not insurmountable, but it's going to be a challenge. And getting all these guys, we got to, all six of us got to be on the same page. So we actually began that study. So it was 21 years ago. I, I wrote a seven-page single-spaced paper on everything the new testament had to say about church leadership and the role and function and qualifications of elders and deacons and with time so i took the men through that then in god's providence he took me to another church and then like two years later the the elder of the i mean the chairman of the elder board team called me not the deacon board the elder board and he said that they had fully transitioned into elder rule at their church thank you pastor cliff praise the lord i wasn't even there to see it happen here it is 20 years later, and they have a healthy church. And they have elders, and they have deacons following a biblical model. So, And then I went to another church, same thing happened. So praise God for that. There were people there willing to look at Scripture, look at what they have currently, and realize, you know what? This is kind of a tweet because of man-made tradition or whatever, and we can't live that way. So uh, structure does matter. There are plenty of people who say that structure or leadership in a church doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter if you have deacons or... Uh, elders or whatever you call them or if you're uh, a bishop it doesn't matter uh, there was one church i was a part of one summer and they had a, the president there was a president of the church uh it's like whoa that's that's weird but i was just thinking about my church history growing up the first church i was ever a part of for many years had a in terms of their leadership they had a, a bishop one guy who was the overseer of like 20 different churches one bishop Elder in charge of 20 churches. That's not biblical. Uh, other churches I was a part of, the one I just described uh, in northern Utah, where we had, I was an associate pastor, we had a senior pastor, we had four deacons, and I was on the deacon board even though I was a pastor, but I was not an elder, and they had no deaconesses, and that was really interesting. Then I went to the next church um, where I was an associate pastor, they had a senior pastor. No, the next church, I was a minister, so I wasn't allowed to be called an elder because I wasn't a pastor yet because I wasn't ordained. But I was a minister and served along a senior pastor, and they had elders, and then they had staff pastors, and the staff pastors weren't elders, and they weren't allowed to go to the... The staff pastors weren't allowed to go to elder meetings because they weren't elders. It's still like that. 
and they had an elder board, and they had deacons, and they had deaconesses. That was another church I was a part of. And then I went to another church uh, where I was an associate pastor first, and then a year later they made me an... Oh, I was in a pastor and an elder, and then a year later they ordained me after I'd been serving as a pastor and elder for a year. And then they had an elder board, and they had a deacon board, and the deacon board had like 15 guys on it, and it was a small church, and they were a totally independent board from the, the elder board, and never the twain shall meet between the elder board and deacon board. It's kind of, they were competitive. It was just strange, incredibly dysfunctional, not in the Bible, and there were problems as a result. And the elder board that did function there had good theology, but they functioned in a CEO-like style in the business world. They weren't elders who made a priority of shepherding the people. They just made, they came to a monthly meeting and they ran it business style and we started seven o'clock and we finished promptly at nine and then we're done. And then they uh, just make decisions and they don't interface with the people. That's just functionally the way it worked. And I, I was there and I thought, wow, this is weird. Uh, this is not in the Bible. Um, so... God used all those experiences for me so that when, you know, God was going to start GBF 11 years ago with the men that we had, I was telling our brothers who eventually would become elders, it's got to start with the leadership. We've got to have a called, qualified, biblical leadership, which is the foundation of this local church, and everything about it needs to be informed from the Bible. And that's what we did. And we were very deliberate about it. So for 11 years now, GBF, I'm just going to say, what you see here in Acts chapter 20, 17 through 38, is how GBF functions. And it's an example of our leadership structure, except we don't have apostles today alive on earth, although we do have apostles alive today in heaven, and they have left us their writings. But we have a plurality of elders who are also called, get this, bishops because those terms are synonymous and that's also synonymous with the term pastor those are interchangeable terms all three terms so an elder is a pastor is a bishop and another word for bishop is overseer so an elder is a pastor is a bishop is an overseer is an episcopos episcopal or presbyter those are all synonymous terms and it's all that's all right here so look at verse 17 point number one the ministry of local church elders. Well, it starts with a model, and that's number one, the model to follow. What is that? Well, it's the ministry of Paul that he laid down, that he modeled, but also that he wrote down in Scripture himself in his epistles and also what God wrote down through other men like Peter, First Peter, and here, Luke. So if you want to function, if you want a, a healthy church, an obedient church, a biblical church, it starts with the leadership. It's got to be biblical there's got to be the proper leadership structure needs to be in place, informed by the Bible, but also qualified men to fill those roles, not compromised characters in those roles. And Paul clearly laid down that model. And that needs to be the foundation of a church. And so in verse 17, notice, and from Miletus, that city, he sent, Paul sends an emissary, a messenger to Ephesus, say 20, 30 miles away, Go, go tell the elders to come and meet me here. Notice, sent to Ephesus and called to himself the elders, plural, of the church, singular. That's kind of the New Testament model. By the way, every time we see elders with respect to church in the New Testament, it's always plural. You don't ever see a church in the New Testament that had one elder. 
It's plural for a reason. Notice the word church is singular. Paul considered the church he just planted and shepherded, even though it was, there were all kind, thousands of people, he considered it one church. And maybe they met, maybe they had satellites and met in different homes or whatever, but Paul considered it, this is one church and there is a plurality of elders overseeing this church. That is absolutely fundamental. Paul planted the church. He was the shepherd of the church among others. He was part of that team. He was definitely the leader giving them God's revelation. But in his place, he knows I'm leaving now and so people have to replace me. People have to supplant me. People have to lead on my behalf because I'm not there anymore. I'm going to entrust that to fallen, sinful plurality of men who are graced by God with qualifications and a calling and character to lead the church of God sufficiently. And they are called elders. And they are to shepherd the church. So this is clearly who he's talking to. He's talking to. So if you have a church that doesn't have elders, that is a problem. If it's a church that's been around for quite some time, that is a gross compromise because it is so blatantly taught in the Bible. Now, the exception could be when you're planting churches because Paul's the model there too. He'd go from city to city and he'd preach and he'd kind of, you know, start a little church, maybe a little Bible study, and then it grew a little bit. Paul always considered it the church. So that might be an exception. You're, you're starting a church plant. Hopefully you have a qualified man or two to get it started. But your goal has to be, by the grace of God, to, to raise up a plurality of leaders called elders to oversee and shepherd that local church. That is clearly the model uh, that Paul has and the apostles have laid down. So a plurality of elders. So looking at verse 17, let's just go through the text here, the first uh, few verses, three or four verses. And as we go, we'll be gleaning some very practical principles for us as we think about. So today we're informing your ecclesiology. My what? No, your ecclesiology. Big word, long word, a lot of syllables. Some of you have heard the word, some of you haven't. Ecclesiology, ology, biology, all those, uh, the study of. Ecclesia, iglesia, if you're Espanol, the study of the church. That's your ecclesiology, the theology of the church. So there's a theology of the church here being modeled. And we need to replicate some of these principles. So for my leaders, he sends for the elders. So the elders gather with Paul. Maybe this was not just a, a minute and 32 conversation, long conversation. He, it could be that he spent hours with these brothers. They were dear to him. He spent three years with them. Uh, they were partners in ministry. They cried together, wept together, prayed together, saw people get saved together. Their hearts were knit. This is very emotional for Paul. He knows he's saying goodbye to the, the dearest men he has in his life that God has blessed him with. He's only known them for up to three years. So this is a very heartfelt meeting, yet amazing information is given to help us and these men. So he gathers the elder the church, uh, there at the city of Miletus, and when the elder, the plurality of elders has come, by the way, uh, on verse 17, elder, the Greek word there is presbuterus, that's plural, for presbuteros, presbyter, presbyterian church. Maybe some of you went to a presbyterian church. That means a church, well, one thing it means is they have a, they believe in elders, so that's good. And Presbyterian churches usually believe in a plurality of elders. So that's good. And that's where they get it from. 
they call themselves, we are Presbyterians. And that comes from the word presbyter, elder. By the way, there were elders in the Old Testament. And they started with the ministry of Moses. Remember when Moses was commissioned by God to lead and deal with two million crybaby Jews in the desert? Two million, he had to counsel them and solve their problems. I mean, that's hard enough with, in our family with just four kids. And it, Moses had to do that with two million people. And so God, in his grace and wisdom, gave people to help Moses, and they were called zakane, the bearded ones, the wise, older, mature, bearded ones in your Hebrew Bible called elders. So God raised up a plurality of elders in the Old Testament to assist Moses in leading God's people, shepherding them, teaching them, encouraging them, overseeing and protecting them. That's the origin of it right from the Old Testament. That carries over into the New Testament. So if you were a a Jew in Paul's day and you heard the gospel and you got saved and God is still requiring elders to be leading the people, that is totally natural. That totally makes sense. That's always been God's plan. Plurality of elders. Zakane, the bearded ones, the older ones, the more mature ones, the more mature, and they're always male. That's not um, anti-feminine or misogynistic or male chauvinistic to say that in the New Testament, elders are always male. They are. The word inherently means male, plurality of males. Uh, the Hebrew word I already told you means bearded one. Unless you have a beard and you're a lady, that's fine. But God was being quite graphic These are males. It hasn't changed. It's 2,000 years later. I know we live in Northern California. I know we live close to San Francisco. I know it's not politically correct, but God's Bible hasn't changed. It's matured, qualified, called males lead the church. It's not discriminatory. God doesn't have a negative view of women. Men and women equally made in the image of God. Men and women with distinct privileged roles by which we can function according to God's plan. Blessed roles. Males have the blessed role of being leaders in marriage and in the church with tremendous responsibility that comes with that. And ladies have tremendously blessed roles from God to function the way God has designed them in the home as the nurturing mother and wife and helper. Tremendous. And to to bring another human being into this world by being a mother and getting pregnant and things that men cannot do. So God knows what is best for humanity. God knows what's best in terms of our roles. God knows what's best for the church and how it should function. Elders, male. So, well, Pastor Cliff, there's this church over here that my friend goes to or my in-laws or my relatives, and they have a a woman that's uh, on the pastoral staff or the woman is a preacher. Oh, that well, that's a huge problem because... 1 Timothy 3 is very clear in Titus chapter 1 are the qualifications for a pastor and an elder. There's the qualification. God wrote out 22 of them for us. He didn't forget one. He needs to be qualified in 21 areas in terms of skills, giftedness, and character. And in addition to that, one of those qualifications, he needs to be a male. So it's not uh, a tangential, secondary, gray area. It's for the good of God's church. It's the good of God's people that they need to be qualified males. It has nothing to do with God looking down on women at all. It's just strictly about roles. So you need to, you need to be a part of a, a, an obedient church if you can find one. 
Uh, so he goes on. So there's a plurality of elders in the church. By the way, verse 17, they are called elders in verse 17. So here's probably one of the main truths I want to get across to you. Look at verse 28. Paul's going on in his conversation, and he's talking to these elders, okay? Okay, elders of Ephesus, uh, let me give you some more exhortations. Verse 28, be on guard. Be careful. Watch out. Keep your head up. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Be vigilant. Be prayerful. Be mindful. Be discerning. Be informed. Don't be clueless. That's what be on guard means. For who? Well, for yourselves and also for the flock, for the local church. Among which the Holy Spirit of God has made you, get this, overseers. Episcopos, Episcopalian. You've heard of Episcopalian churches. That's where the word comes from. Episcopos, it's, it's a compound word. Episcopa, scopa, scopa, episcopa, episcopa, scopa, scope, scopas, telescope, microscope. Scope, periscope, scopa, scope. That's where it comes from. And then epi, to scope, epi, over. To scope, to look at, to over, to look over, to look over, to oversee. Oh, to see over, overseer. That's why our English Bible translates it overseer. And so the elders are overseers. The elders are episcopos. The presbyters are episcopos. That's what they're supposed to be. So an elder is to oversee the flock, looking for danger, looking for where to lead them for water and for grass and for the enemy and where we can rest and who's here and did anybody leave? Is anyone sick? Does anyone need particular care? That's what an overseer, the overseer sees the big picture, the big picture. The shepherd, on the other hand, a synonymous term, that's down in the trenches, rubbing shoulders, carrying, that's at the micro level. You're carrying the sheep, you're lifting the sheep, you've got them on your shoulders. That's uh, pastor, that's a different word. This is big picture. And it is critical that leaders in the church see the big picture. And it's their responsibility. But the point is that an elder in verse 17 is also called an overseer in verse 28 or an episcopos. Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock. It's your responsibility. God's Holy Spirit puts you in that role and has made you an overseer. And as an overseer and as an elder, your job, what's the verb they are to do? What are elders supposed to do? What are overseers supposed to do? What are presbyters and episcopals supposed to do? The verb is to shepherd. That's the middle of verse 28. To shepherd. The noun form is pastor. It's the same word, same cognate. So in Ephesians 4.11, when Paul says God started the church, he did it through Christ, he laid a foundation and he builds it in the proper order. And God has given to the church first apostles, then prophets. That's New Testament prophets. Teachers, evangelists, but also in that list are pastors. So God has given pastors to the church as leaders. That is the only time in the New Testament, aside from the Gospels, where the word pastor is used as a noun. From here on out, after Paul said that in Ephesians, anytime we see the word pastor, it's in verb form. It's shepherd, shepherding. So it's what elders do. I am an elder, what do I do? I shepherd. I'm an overseer, what do I do? I shepherd. I'm a presbyter, an episcopos, what do I do? I shepherd. That is the verb. I'm a pastor, well, yeah, you can call me that because it's there in Ephesians 4. But primarily a shepherd does work. They're down in the trenches, they're with the sheep, uh, they're protecting the sheep, they're feeding the sheep, they smell like sheep, and they're interacting hands-on with the sheep. That's our job, shepherding. 
every elder should be shepherding in the church with the sheep. So elders are not called to sit on elder boards and just watch from a distance, dictating edicts from afar, being totally clueless about who the members are and what the needs are. That's not shepherding. An elder is called to be a shepherd. Be with the sheep. Get down and dirty. It's smelly down there. It's dangerous down there with the sheep. Frustrating. It's also a blessing. You've got to love the sheep. Be with the sheep. So there are the three terms. So that's probably the greatest truth that you could take away from this passage with respect to the structure of God's church and the way it was intended to be and their roles. And they are all very specific. I already talked about how presbyter, elder, comes out of the rich history of the Old Testament. So there's a lot of examples of how that should function. There's always a plurality of like-minded, godly, qualified men who are operating according to divine revelation, which we have in the Bible as a team. And in the New Testament, that's over the local church. And then you have that that term here uh, that Paul uses mostly in, in verse 28, overseer, episkopos. Where You know where Paul got that one? So presbyter, elder, that's a Jewish term with Jewish background. Because Paul was witnessing to the Jews, goes in a synagogue, preaches there, gives the gospel. Some of the elders were getting saved. Most resisted, most got hostile and angry. Some of those Jews in the synagogue got saved. And some of those Jews in the synagogue who heard the gospel and got saved were already Jewish elders. We saw that early in the book of Acts. Paul is, they're preaching, the, God, the apostles are preaching the gospel, and it says some of the elders believed. That means Jewish elders. And so they had this rich history, they understood the scriptures, and now they are enlightened about who Jesus is, and they have the fullness of the meaning of scripture. They're already older men and probably more mature men, and it could very well be that they quickly transitioned into the role of elders in the local church. That's why Paul could go and plant churches very quickly within three months and establish elders, and you're thinking, whoa, how in the world can Paul plant a church and then leave it in three months and already have elders intact in that church? Because they're, they're baby Christians. Well, that would be probably be true of gentiles who got saved who have zero biblical background but in many of those cities older jews who loved yahweh and loved scripture got saved and they already had all the ingredients to be qualified to lead the churches so that's where those early elders came from in the in the early church so elders are over oh by the way i was going to say so elders are jewish background and then paul's going around and he's talking to greeks that's his calling gentiles who speak greek for the most part in the in the greek world and in the roman world and you didn't have really elders who ruled zakane in all these jewish greek speaking areas you had episkopos who ruled so uh, the leaders of the city of athens were the episkopoi they were the guardians of the city. They were respected men who oversaw the city and, and everything involved in the city, Episcopal. So Paul just adopted that term. The, the men who are leaders and respected in your church, that's kind of like elders. I mean, in your city, that's what elders are supposed to be in the church. So Paul actually takes a secular term used in the Gentile and Greek world, and then he adopts it and ties it in with the church and virtually makes it synonymous with elders. So that Paul could speak cosmopolitan. Paul could speak to both uh, kinds of people. He could speak to people with Jewish background and people with pagan Greek Gentile background when he's talking about church leadership because he's calling them elders and at the same time he's calling them overseers. And you know what? Everybody understands. It clicks for the Gentiles who spoke Greek. It clicks for the 
Hebrew-speaking Jews. Oh, okay. But now they just have two names by which they refer to those. And here's what an elder does, and here's what an overseer does. They shepherd. And everybody, regardless of your religious, ethnic background, whether you're Jew or Greek, everybody knew what a shepherd was because it was agrarian society wherever you go. That was a universal term they could relate to. That's what you do. So that is tremendously important. Let's go on to verse 18 there. Uh, So when the elders came to Paul, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that. uh, So regarding the model. So Paul is the model of how to be a shepherd. You you don't become a pastor. Or or work in the church to, to get wealth or money or prestige. Some people do that. You do just the opposite. You become a servant. You become a slave for people. Slave for Jesus. That's what Paul was. He was the perfect model. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, in Ephesus, how I was with you the whole time. So that's what a shepherd does. He's with the people. Got to be with the people. Got to be accessible to the people. That's what elders do. Paul's our model. He was an apostle. He was, an, he was made out of marble. And yet he was accessible to the people. And he was one with the people. He looked eye to eye with the people. You yourselves know uh, how I was with you the whole time. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. So there it is. You're called into the ministry. You're a pastor. You have a leadership position not to advance yourself. You're an elder not to be on a CEO board. You are an elder to be a servant to the Lord and his people. You are a leader to wash people's feet. That's biblical ministry. That's biblical leadership. It's foreign to the world. So you know that I was serving the Lord. Paul was single-minded, his love for Jesus, no matter what. And he he also said he did it with all humility, lowliness of mind. In other words, uh, I knew that I wasn't much. I wasn't greater than anybody else that I would ever meet. I was not a worse, uh, I mean, I wasn't greater than any other sinners I meet. As a matter of fact, I am the worst sinner there ever was. That's why Paul could be legitimately lowly-minded of himself. That's what humility means. You view yourself with low, I'm, I'm down here. So Paul, that's, that is tremendous. So the, wherever Paul goes and evangelizes, it doesn't matter your sin and the wickedness in your life. You would not shock Paul. You know, I got one worse than that. Really? Yeah, me. Paul, former Christian killer. You can't get worse than that. I am the worst of all sinners. First Timothy chapter one. That's what Paul thought of himself. He knew it. He shouldn't be saved. He shouldn't be forgiven. He should not be given a position of leadership as an apostle. He shouldn't be receiving divine revelation. He shouldn't be going to heaven. It's all 100% the grace and mercy of God. Had nothing to do with himself. All Paul knew is if he looked at himself, look within, look inside. You know, that's very dangerous, if you're honest. You look within and look inside, all you see is yuck. And that's what Paul saw, Romans 7. I look inside, I evaluate me, and I, ooh, yuck. I am wicked, sin lives in me. God, help me, save me from the wretched man that I am. That's the key to humility, and that was Paul's view of himself. And as a result, he could serve anybody. It didn't matter what their sin was. And so serving the Lord with all humility, those three years, with tears, he was in it 100% because of his love for the people, love for the truth. He did it with trials. He persevered. He didn't give up. He didn't throw in the towel. Every year that goes by since the time I graduated from seminary in 19, 
92, year after year after year, I just keep hearing, okay, there's another pastor who gave up. Oh, there's another pastor who quit his church. Oh, there's another pastor who quit the ministry. Oh, a lot of times it has to do with uh, perseverance through hardships. And I'm thinking, okay, God, uh, it's by your grace that I persevere. Or any man or any woman with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything. How I did not shrink to, to pull back. You know what that means? I wasn't afraid to say anything if it was the truth. Well, Paul, if you said that, you might offend somebody. Paul, if you said that, you might hurt somebody's feelings. Paul, if you said that, you might get a negative reaction. Paul, if you said that, that's politically incorrect. You can't say that. You can't say that pastors, qualified pastors in a church uh, can only be men and can't be women. That wouldn't fly in our culture. That wouldn't fly in our day. You know what people would say about you and think about you? You know how you would undermine the message of love about Christianity, if you did that, well, Paul wasn't shrinking away from truth. That's why he was persecuted and maligned constantly. And that's how elders need to be. That's how local church elders need to be and pastors. We, we need to be bold and courageous and fearless with the help of the Lord to speak the truth, no matter what the truth is no matter who's in the audience and let the chips fall where they may. So elders are to be courageous, boldly preaching truth as Paul was. He is our model. Persevering, hanging in there through trials and hardships. Verse 20, not shrinking away, but being bold and declaring. By the way, he uses all these verbs with respect to what is ministry, in defining his ministry. He talks about the ministry given to me in verse 24. The ministry, what was the ministry Paul was given? It was a speaking ministry, a preaching ministry, a talking ministry, a teaching ministry. Those are all the verbs that he used. It is proclaiming truth. That's what God's people, that's what sinners need. They need to hear the Bible. They need truth, biblical truth, more than anything else, more than education, money. doesn't matter. Sinners need, first and foremost, the truth of the word of God. The living word of God, the saving message, that is the priority. Paul knew that. He wasn't going to compromise on it. He is our model. He was committing to preaching, teaching, speaking, testifying of, admonishing with the truth. So I didn't shrink away from declaring to you anything that was profitable, everything that I knew, everything that I could explain out of the Old Testament that we had, everything that God gave me by view of direct revelation, Everything that was a true tradition I heard about Jesus and his life that I heard from other Christians told you about that. So his teaching was comprehensive, a complete worldview as God had revealed it through his scripture and divine revelation. Not only was he persevering and courageous and bold in his preaching, uh, he sought out the needs of the people. It wasn't about him. It was what was beneficial for you, what you needed to hear, where you were at in your life, what you needed to hear. So he's sensitive to the needs. He knew the people. What does the sheep need to eat? When does the sheep need to eat? What, when does the sheep need to be tended to? When should they go to bed? When are they sick? Are they sick? How do I tell? Very in tune with the people. And that was Paul. He is our model. So do elders and pastors, do they know their local sheep? Can you even tell me the names of the people that are on your uh, membership role? Do you know anything about them? What's going on in their life? Do they have any needs? Are you praying for them? Do you even interact and talk with them? That's what a pastor and an elder, he needs to be in tune with his people. Because our ministry needs to be beneficial for you. That's a biblical leader. Profitable. Not only that, uh, notice the personal touch here. Teaching you comprehensively and all this stuff. Publicly in the school of Tyrannus and in other places and in the courtyard and on the street court. But not only that, also from house to house. This is the pastoral visit. 
can't meet at church because they didn't have one. They didn't have a church building. House to house, Bible studies and uh, meeting with the people for three years. Gave his life for the people. Verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it was a complete message. What was his message? It wasn't on uh, the social gospel, the needs of the day, the political events of the day, um, and other man-made, diagnosed, so-called needs that humanity has. It was one message given to him by God, and it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ for sinners. Verse 21, solemnly testifying, being a witness. Solemnly testifying, by the way, is one word. It's a compound word, and it is emphatic. Speaking authoritatively on the behalf of God as a witness of heaven itself. Testifying what? To everybody. It didn't matter if you were a Jew or Greek. It didn't matter your background. You're going to hear the message from Paul, and that was repentance towards God. God created you. He made you. God loves the world. You have a broken relationship with him because of your sin that you were born with. You are a child of wrath, and unless you turn from your sin... That's what repentance means. Turn away. Turn away in your thinking, but also turn away in your actions. You need to turn from your sin, hate your sin, turn from your sin, and turn toward God. That is part of the good news. You can't tell somebody the good news until you tell them the bad news. You are estranged from God. He is your enemy. You're a child of wrath. You hate him because of your sin that you love so much. That's what it says in the Bible. These are the bold kind of things that Paul was saying that would make People mad. Sinners don't want to be told they are sinful and wicked and evil to the core. Deserving of nothing. You can't save yourself. And when you die, apart from Christ or God or the gospel, you will go to hell. That's the bad news. But there's good news. And the good news, man, it is great news. It is great news. And that's the second part of the message. You are separated from God. You can't find him yourself. You can't do any good works to please him whatsoever. But here's the great thing. It has nothing to do with your works. It only has to do with God's works. It was all of God's works who saved sinners. It was all of uh, Jesus' work on the cross that saved sinners. And as soon as you understand that message, all you have to do is believe in that message and that reality. That is the good news. You don't do good works. You believe in the good works that Jesus did on your behalf as a sinner. What was the good work? That he came down here as the God-man, infinite God in a human body, lived a perfect life, never sinned, came deliberately for one mission, and that was to die for sinners to earn their forgiveness so that they could be adopted into the family of God. That is why Jesus came the first time. And he willingly went to the cross and hung there for six hours and not only physical torment, but primarily supernatural divine wrath from holy God the Father being poured down on Jesus on the cross. He was being punished as a substitute for any wicked sinner who would believe in Jesus. By faith, that's it. Amazing. And Jesus absorbed all the wrath of the Father. He died the death that every sinner deserves. Buried, rose again from the dead, showing that he was indeed Lord. He conquered sin, death, the devil, eternal hell on behalf of anyone who would believe in him. That is the good news. So if you if you don't know Jesus and you don't know God, and you're a skeptic and maybe, oh, hell's not fair. That's not fair. Well, that's okay. Think about the good news that I just told you. There's a solution to that. And that is crying out to the Lord Jesus, who is in heaven right now, waiting. He's been prompting with his Holy Spirit. He's been prompting with truth. Maybe you've heard from other people to prick your conscience, 
to make you admit that you are sinful, need of a Savior, and you bow the knee to him and you cry out to him, Lord Jesus, save me from my sin. Adopt me into your family. I believe that you died for me. I believe that the only way to the Father in heaven is through you and the work that you did on my behalf. Lord Jesus, save me. He will save you. He'll answer that prayer. He will change you supernaturally. He will regenerate you. He will immediately adopt you into the family of God. That is Christianity. That is the message that Paul preached everywhere he went. And it's what brought on tremendous hatred, persecution, and rejection, but also the greatest blessing for anyone, despite their sinful background, who believed in that message. That is the good news of Christianity. Thank God for Paul and the fantastic model that he is for all of us as a faithful apostle, pastor, and servant of the church. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day, our time together. Every person that you brought here today, we do pray for those who couldn't be with us today that you keep them safe and go before them. And we thank you for your word that 2,000 years later it is as fresh and as relevant as ever. We thank you most of all for the grace that we can find in the Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. We give him all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.